Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation. Genesis was easy for us to find. It's in the beginning of your Bibles. Revelation, it's just as easy. Just go to the end. We'll do Obadiah next, and uh, that'll keep us all on our toes. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word to us, and we pray that You would take it now and make it effective in our lives. Lord, no amount of our own effort can do that. We are completely dependent on You through the Spirit's working in our lives for us to hear. So give us ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. There has been, um, I feel like I need to stop before I preach and say this, uh, it's good to be back. Um, I'm grateful to have time off, but I miss being with you all, and I miss the opportunity to be in this capacity to, to preach God's Word, and so I'm grateful to be back. Um, we're starting a study in Revelation. I didn't make any big announcement about it. I found that our church is like every church. It doesn't take long for word to get around. I started getting emails and text messages this week, people saying they were excited. No one said that they were worried or concerned, uh, but I'm sure that if you have ever read Revelation on your own or studied it, you know that there is a little bit of hesitancy as we come to a book like this. It is a challenging book. I'll explain more of why we're looking at the book of Revelation but I want to mention in the beginning here um, a meme that I have seen posted recently that I think captures where we are. Now, if you don't know what a meme is, it's a, it's a pop culture trend right now. A meme is just a picture, and it usually has words on it or above or below it that describe it, and it's intended to be humorous. They usually are funny, not all of them, but most of them. And this particular meme is a picture of two waves coming ashore, two large waves coming ashore. And the first large wave has the label on it 2020, and the second larger wave coming behind it has the label 2021. And as you have seen that meme, or as you imagine it now in your minds, you, you, know, you heard the response, right? It was kind of a... Uh-huh. Right? It's, it's funny, but it's really not. Because 2020 was, it was a challenging year. And as we've just, we're just a few weeks into 2021, we are scratching our heads of, can this, <laughs> can things get worse? Well, let me tell you, they can. Uh, they can. You only have to look back in history to know that. And we only have to look forward in prophecy to see that things can indeed get worse. And so while we can lament what has happened, 
we can recognize that it hasn't been pleasant. There have been many things that have, we could call them, I mean, it's, it's to say 2020 was a difficult year is just an understatement, right? I mean, there's no, there, it's hard to capture how challenging it really was. We even try to use words like unprecedented, but now that word is used to describe everything, so it doesn't even mean anything anymore. And we know there have been much worse years in history, and we know that there are people groups that has, have suffered far worse things than we have suffered in 2020, and yet we have suffered these things. They have been difficult. We have faced these challenges. And so as we were going through that the year and as I was looking ahead thinking Genesis is going to come to an end, I didn't know when uh, at the time I was thinking what would I preach next and I began thinking about the book of Re- Revelation. Now I can tell you that when I came here, if you had said, Seth, give me a list of the top ten books that you are looking forward to and want to preach through, Revelation would not have been in that list. I didn't imagine that I would be taking this on this soon. This was not a part of a master plan or anything like that. It's really in response to what has happened uh, in the past year. Revelation is hard to understand at places. In, in ways, it can even seem scary if you've ever tried to read through it to try and understand it and figure it out. And on top of that... There are a lot of different ideas about how we should interpret it, even among Christians. And I would say specifically, even among Bible-believing Christians. Christians who take God's Word seriously, there are still many different opinions. And so the response, unfortunately, is often to just avoid it. Just stay away from it. However, as we have faced the changes, the difficulties, and really, I think, For me, what was the most difficult thing of 2020 were the questions. How do we know what's really happening? All of the, you know, is this true? Is that true? What's really happening? Just the questions seemed particularly heavy on my heart. I came back to this plan to preach through the book of Revelation because my desire and hope as the pastor is to proclaim the, the hope that we have in Christ. And while any passage of Scripture certainly draws us to that, Revelation does this in a, in a focused and triumphant way. And so, yes, it is difficult to understand at some places. Yes, there are mysteries left where we are not quite sure of things, how things are going, what things are going to look like. But ultimately, it is Scripture And therefore, we can understand it. And Revelation is, and this is really what drew me to it, Revelation is this picture of the risen and reigning Christ. And we need to see that now more than ever. So back in May, I began reading through Revelation devotionally. And while I have read through Revelation in my quiet time, I've read through it a number of times, I have never read through it devotionally. I've never taken time to just study devotionally. It's a little different than when you study to preach it. I didn't get into all the details, but just to study it devotionally. 
And one of the things that, that, that kept coming out were these, there's, there's some real themes that we see in the book of Revelation. I want to mention a few of those at the outset because these are themes that we're going to see uh, throughout our study. This isn't exhaustive. There's just four of these that I want to mention at the beginning, uh, but the themes that I want us to keep in mind. And for me, I, I, the most significant theme, what my heart needs to hear from this book is the absolute sovereignty of our God in and over history. The absolute sovereignty of our God in and over history. You may say, Seth, that is first grade theology right there. Of course God's sovereign over history. He's God. Why do you need to hear that? Well, here, when we hear of the sovereignty of God, when we sing of the sovereignty of God, it, it, it is comforting and encouraging and we all agree But what about when we turn on the news? Is it just me? Does the sovereignty of God begin to kind of get, you know, drowned out a little bit? It doesn't change that God's sovereign. I'm just saying our perception of it. What about when we hear of a global pandemic? Or when we see national and political strife? Or when we experience on a personal level suffering and loss and grief? Do we know in our hearts of hearts that God is ruling? That He is absolutely sovereign over all these things? There's nothing that happens that is apart from His plan and His purpose. And nothing will stall or stop His kingdom reign. Another theme that we see in Revelation is that Satan is real. And that he is a true enemy of us all. Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He works as a counterfeit. He is a vandal. He is a destroyed enemy, yet he is on a leash right now. And he is doing everything he can to mess our lives up. That is real. That is true. We are in a spiritual battle. Again, in this room, we're all nodding our heads. But when we go out, these doors into real life, how quickly we forget that we're in a spiritual battle, don't we? But we are. We're in a spiritual battle. Not only is God sovereign, even over Satan's vain efforts to sabotage his kingdom, thirdly, we see the certain return of Christ in Revelation, in which he will come and consummate the kingdom and will ultimately make everything right. Folks, this is everything we long for. Everything we long for, I feel like, can be captured in that phrase. That He will make everything right. Understand this. Our hope is not in an idea. Our hope is not in information. You are not going to get hope from me disseminating information. You might get hopeful feelings. Our hope is a person. Please don't forget that. Our hope is a person. His name is Jesus. And He is coming back and will take us back with Him to be with Him and the Father and the Spirit forever. And everything will be right. We can't even get our minds around that. That's a theme of revelation that we need to come back to again and again. Fourthly, uh, another theme, the last one I want to mention in this book that comes throughout. We see it in these opening words 
is the exhortation for us to remain faithful. The exhortation for us to remain faithful. It is so easy for us to fall in despair when we see what's happening in the world around us, isn't it? We turn on the news. I, you know, I, I have had to just continually cut things out of my life recently. It's just, uh, it's not good for my heart. And this morning as I was going over my sermon, I have, by default, these notifications on my computer that are allowed to come across my screen. And typically when I'm going over my sermon, I close everything out. It's just my sermon on the screen so I don't get distracted. And what comes across the screen? Notifications of news. Yeah, just what I need to be distracted by and aggravated by this morning. And so I had to go in real quick into the settings and I I had to turn these things off because I so quickly fall into despair when I see the events that are happening around the world. But Revelation is a call for us, regardless of the news. And I'm not saying stick your head in the sand, but you may have to curtail some of your ingestion of news if you're anything like me. Uh, Revelation is a call for us that no matter what the news is, what's happening around the world, that we are to continue to trust our faithful Savior and walk in obedience to His voice. He has promised to be with us. He has given us His Spirit that we might be strengthened to do so. He didn't leave us alone. He didn't leave us in our own strength. He didn't say, you guys go out there and be tough. Go do it. Get her done. He gave us His Spirit by which we might call on and look to for the strength when we are overwhelmed, when we do feel that despair, that we might hope in Him. Now, this theme, again, isn't exhaustive. I think we'll see much more, but I want us to keep those things in mind. My hope and my prayer is that this study will encourage our hearts that we would not despair no matter what comes our way, but will rest and trust in the secure anchor of our soul, Jesus our Savior. Now, there will be questions along the way. There will probably be more questions than we're used to. Uh, I will not promise right now to answer all of your questions. There may be things that I don't answer or answer satisfactorily. I'll do my best. But what I do want to assure you of from the outset is that we can benefit from this study. Because all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. And so let's look now beginning in verse 1. These first three verses are a prologue to this book. They tell us what the book is and its purpose so that we know what it is. The book is a letter. It's a letter written from John while he's on the island of Patmos in exile to the seven churches in Asia. So it is an epistle. It's a pastoral letter. But it also fits into two other categories. It's really one category called apocalyptic prophecy. But I want to look at both of those elements first so that we understand it. Now, uh, John states the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word for revelation there in Greek is apocalypsis. And typically when we hear the word apocalypse or or apocalyptic, what do we think of? It's the end of the world as we know it, right? That's what comes to our mind is we think this this is the end. But this word apocalypsis means unveiling or revealing. And so because of the way our minds think of end world 
you know, destruction kind of stuff when we hear this word. We have to remind ourselves, no, apocalypsis means unveiling. So how have we treated Revelation? Uh, many of us for, uh, you know, we've avoided it, right? Because we feel like it's a concealing. It's not. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the opening words of the book, it is an unveiling of things. Now, it isn't this word alone that makes it apocalyptic. It's actually the content of the book that makes it fit into this genre. There are all tons of just symbolism uh, that, that portray powers of good and evil. And uh, we, we see the genre particularly popular in Jewish writing at times in the history of uh, when, when the people felt like uh, they were separated from God or God wasn't present or God was silent. So what would be those periods of time then when we would expect apocalyptic uh, literature to be more prominent? Well, how about when the people are in exile? And that's exactly what we see. What's the most prominent Old Testament book of apocalyptic literature? Daniel, right? And Daniel was written when they were in exile in Babylon. They uh, felt like they were cut off from God. And there was judgment. God had foretold it. They, they were warned about it, were called to repent. Um, they didn't. And so uh, Daniel's book is the same category of apocalyptic literature. We'll refer back to Daniel a number of times. There's a lot of correlation between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. There were also a number of uh, books that were written in this same genre that are not Scripture. They're not inspired uh, they were written during the intertestamental period between uh, what, the, the period of history that is, that is between the 400 years, what, what are often called the silent years between what is the Old Testament and the New Testament or the period of history that those two places cover. And so it is this, uh, this genre. But it's also prophetic, right? It foretells. And we see in verse 3 that it's called a prophecy. Uh, at the end of the book, we're reminded that this is a book of prophecy. In fact, it's a quote of Jesus that says, blessed are the ones who hear and obey this book of prophecy. Jesus himself calls this a book of prophecy. But prophecy is one of those other things. It's like the word apocalypse. When we think of the word apocalypse, we think of doom, the end of the world, uh, that kind of thing. And the word apocalypse means revealing. Well, the same is true with prophecy. When we hear the word prophecy, what do we think? Foretelling the future, right? Predicting, telling us what's going to happen. And so that's how we've treated the book of Revelation, particularly in modern, uh, let's say, American Christianity. We, we tried to turn it into this book that we can unfold and create maps and charts and, and details of what's going to happen. But what do we see in other books of prophecy that should guard us against doing this? Well, first, prophecy is not only foretelling or predicting the future, it is also forthtelling. It is exhortation. It is commandments. It is comfort. God sent his prophets as his mouthpieces to speak his message, his word to his people. And sometimes that word was comfort. Sometimes that word was, if you guys don't obey, you're going to get it. <laughs> Paraphrase. Uh, it, it, it was both this foretelling, but it was also this forthtelling, this encouragement. And so this is especially important for us to remember 
that the book of Revelation isn't given us simply as a roadmap, but it's given to us to encourage us. The churches in Asia were facing persecution. They were not only facing persecution at the time of the writing, they were going to face even greater persecution. And John is writing pastorally to strengthen them that they may not fall away, that they would stand strong in the faith. In other words, prophecy is about showing us there is hope, that God will triumph while calling us to be faithful and wait. One of the hardest things for us to do. Just an example. When you think of messianic prophecy, we always look at it, of course, it's backwards, right? We're looking at it through history. And we go, why didn't they figure this out? There were all these things. Born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. They should have known. They should have figured it out. Well, of course, it's easy to see messianic prophecy in hindsight and say it's so clear. But there's tons of things about the Messiah that weren't prophesied, that people didn't know. Didn't know his father was going to be a carpenter. There's no prophecy about his father being a carpenter, that he would likely grow up as a carpenter. I mean, there's tons of things. And yet, what was the thrust of Messianic prophecy? Was it so that they would know all the details or so that they would have hope that God was sending a Savior? It was so that they would have hope. And the same is true with the book of Revelation. It is given to us that we might have hope. John Stott writes, We do not need a detailed forecast of future events which has to be laboriously deciphered, but rather a vision of Jesus Christ to cheer the faint, encourage the weary. John's desire is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but to stimulate our faithfulness in the present. Now, I'll say that there are things in Revelation about the future. And we are told in other passages of Scripture to be aware of the times and to be on guard and to be alert. I'm not dismissing those things. But I am working to correct what I think is is the wrong emphasis in our current day and time that we are looking into Revelation only for the future events like a crystal ball. That's how we've treated it. Instead, it has been written not to satisfy our curiosity about the future but to stimulate our faithfulness in the present. You want to get something out of Revelation? Look for the encouragement to remain faithful in the present. Scotty Smith writes this, He, John, is writing to encourage, not to confound. Grace and peace, not perplexity and puzzle, should be this, come from studying the last book of the Bible. Blessed not left scratching their heads, are the ones who read and hear and take to heart these words. Again, let us remember, this is a revealing, not a concealing. And so I want to come back to the first category then of what this book is. Yes, it is prophetic, it is apocalyptic, but it is an epistle. It is pastoral. Remember that as you read and study Revelation. This is a pastoral letter. It is a shepherding letter. It is a letter written with love and care to help us. I believe this point is driven home in the fact that God in His all-wise sovereignty ensured that it wasn't just a prophetic letter, but it was an epistle. That it was given to the church in that manner. John is not only writing, though, for the churches in Asia. 
He is writing for us as well. Because this is Scripture. It is not just given to a specific people in a specific time, but it is given to all of God's people throughout time. And so this isn't a, this isn't a, a, a passage of Scripture that only relates to the people at that time or only relates to the people who will be alive when Christ returns. It applies to all Christians in all periods of history, including us. It is for us. Let me say it this way. Revelation is a pastoral message given to encourage hope as we face hardships in this life, particularly as we battle the spiritual forces of evil, so that we do not lose heart and walk away, but rather remain trusting the one who has proclaimed and promised utter victory in the end. That's what the book of Revelation is. Now we see in this verse verse that it's the revelation of Jesus, the unveiling, but it's also the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's his revelation. And there's been some debate as to whether he's the subject or the object here in terms of how do we read this or understand this. I think that it's both. I think that primarily he is the object It is his revelation. The Father has given him this to then give to the angel to take to John. So this is his role. We'll talk more about, wait a second, aren't the Father and the Son both God and aren't they both omniscient and why is is there any disconnect between that? We'll talk about that more as time goes on. There isn't, but this is more about roles and how they function. Uh, But Jesus has been given this revelation. He's been given the role to then give to John through the angel to give to us for our good, for our benefit. And so he is the object, uh, he is the source of this revelation. In other words, this isn't just a vision that John had and wrote down. Jesus is the source of everything that we read in Revelation. It's his revelation. But it's also about Jesus. He's also the subject of this revelation. I think that we will see this more and more. And frankly, I think we need to see this. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to preach through Revelation is that we need to see Jesus for who he really is and worship him as our reigning king and savior and friend. And now more than ever, we do not need to lose sight of the triumphant one, especially as the persecution of Christians grows around the world. And I would say if our time comes, or I could say when our time comes to suffer for the name, we need to be strengthened to withstand the growing assault by knowing who Jesus is. And I don't mean knowing about Jesus. I mean knowing him as a person. Now, one other thing I want to mention in verse 1 is the word must. It says it must soon take place. There's a sense of confidence That this isn't like this could take place, but these things must take place. The history is held firmly in the hands of our God. In fact, I think that this is the more prominent message of Revelation rather than the roadmap to end time events. But let's be honest, we'd rather have the roadmap, wouldn't we? I would. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. I'd rather have the roadmap. I'd rather know what's going to go down, when it's going to go down, and how it's going to go down. Because I don't want to be inconvenienced or surprised by something happening without my knowledge. And if you really want to dig deep down into my decrepit heart, I also want to be right. 
I want to know. I want the roadmap so I can be right. Does this ring true with any of you? I think by the laughs it probably does. We all want to know when, what, how it's going to happen. But where would our faith be? He does tell us some things that are going to happen. But his goal is not for us to know the roadmap to the end. His goal is for us to trust him to the end. To remain faithful to the end. And to obey him to the end. Revelation is more than just a crystal ball for us. It declares to us that God is ruling in history, not just at the time of the writing of this book, and not just during the end time events that will come. He is ruling right now over the events that have happened in 2020 and all of the things that are going to unfold yet in 2021. He is ruling. He is reigning. And so this is a book not just for the churches in Asia, not just for the people who will be alive when Christ returns. It is a book for believers in all times, including us. This book is for you and for me. William Hendrickson writes this, The book reveals the principles of divine moral government which are constantly operating so that whatever age we happen to live in, we can see God's hand in history and His mighty arm protecting us and giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ so that we are edified and comforted. This is what we need more than a roadmap. The revelation of Jesus Christ was given to John through the angel. It is for your good and my good right here and right now. We need this message of hope and assurance. In verse 2, John ascribes the source of the message. He said it is the testimony of Jesus. It is the word of God. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for us, so therefore revelation is also profitable for us. We also see there's a blessing, we'll get to that in a second, in verse 3, a blessing for those who read and obey this book. Verse 2 also captures that John is testifying to all that he saw. He's, this is pointing more to the vision which captures or, or is, is captured in, in the, the larger section of the book. Um, this, this, all that he saw is in parallel with the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's pointing out that this is truthful, that it is authoritative, that it is again for our benefit, for our good. And so we would do well to pay attention to it, well to heed it. As we come to the first image of Jesus that John sees in this vision, he is described among other things as having a double-edged sword coming from his mouth. Now, we'll talk more about how we understand the imagery in the book of Revelation, but let me just say that we're familiar with this probably. You've probably read Revelation 1, 16 before, the, the, the image of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. If you didn't have that in your frame of reference, and you saw, let's say you saw a movie, and a character in the movie opened its mouth and a double-edged sword came out, would you find that interesting, funny, or horrifying? <laughs> I mean, that is a scary image, isn't it? And yet, it's not given to scare us like that. But it's rather given to teach us something. Now, John really saw this. This was a vision that he saw of Jesus with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. But should we anticipate when we uh, either come to the end of our lives or when Jesus re returns, should we anticipate when Jesus opens his mouth that a double-edged sword comes out? I don't think so. 
This is a symbol. And the symbol is to instruct us about the power of God's Word. Now, again, we'll talk more about all of this as we go through the book, but I just want you to see the importance of how we understand this. I think George Eldon Ladd's helpful here. He writes, The Word of God is thought of in the Bible not merely as a means of communicating truth, but as an active, dynamic entity. In the beginning, God spoke, and it was done. Psalm 33, 9. God's Word goes out into the world to accomplish what He purposes. Isaiah 55, 11. And at the end, God's Word will go forth and His redemptive purposes will be brought to consummation. It is significant that the weapon of the conquering Christ is the sword that issues out of His mouth, the Word of God. The Word that created everything. The Word that holds all things together. The Word that accomplishes all of His purposes is the Word that will conquer in the end. And this is the word that you and I need to read and to hear. Finally, in verse 3, we see this promised blessing. And verse 3, you'll notice, is printed in your bulletin under the sermon title. And I've asked Minda to print that there um, every week throughout our study. I want us to come back to verse 3 and read verse 3. We won't read it out loud or anything, but I want you to see it. Because when we're in the middle, especially when the questions come up and we're talking about seven-headed beasts and these kind of things, I want us to come back to verse 3 and to see, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There's a blessing promised. It's one blessing, it has two components. The first is directed toward the reader. Now, any of us can read it, but the particular reader that is in mind here as John writes this letter is the one who would carry the scroll to the seven churches and read it to them. There was a blessing pronounced on this person. As you might imagine, John wrote in a scroll. There was no mass printing. There was no internet. He couldn't tweet his letter to the seven churches. So he wrote it on a scroll and someone carried that. And this was the way the letters were disseminated in the New Testament times. And we see from some of Paul's letters that the letters were intended to be shared among churches. Even though it was addressed to specific churches, they were later to be shared among other churches. We see this, at the, for example, at the end of Colossians in Colossians 4.16, where Paul says, send this letter, I think it was on to Sardis, I can't remember the other city, and, and you were supposed to get the letter from there. There was the sharing of the letters, right? So this is how the word got out, how the word went forward. And so what this is pointing us to is not just to how the word was disseminated and a blessing on that person, but actually to the gathering of public worship. It's inferred here in the blessing upon the reader that there would be people who would hear the reader, that they would come and listen to this reading. And so there is an emphasis here on the gathering of God's people together for public worship. Again, from Lad, the revelation was given not merely to impart information about the future, but to help God's people in the present, who must therefore keep what is written in the words of the prophecy. So we, in the present, must gather together and hear God's word together in public worship to be strengthened by it. We need this, and there's a blessing that comes from that. But the blessing is not only to those us who hear We can't separate this second part of the the blessing into two more parts. It is a blessing on those who hear and heed, or hear and obey. Uh, How many times do we see in Scripture from the very words of Jesus, in fact, uh, don't be hearers of the word only, 
but be doers of the word also. We are to not just listen, we are to act in obedience, to believe it, to apply it, to know the blessing. And so again, I want us to remember verse 3 as we move through this book, especially as we're in more challenging portions of the book, that we come back to this again and again to be reminded of God's blessing for us. The final thing I want to say from the text here is in the last statement, the time is near. Now, this can seem confusing to us because John wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. If the time was near, why hasn't it happened? I'll tell you the answer next No, I'm kidding. The, why hasn't it happened? Well, it hasn't happened because our time and God's time is not the same. A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. But also the emphasis here on language, there are two different Greek words that can be used for time. One is a chronological word. It's not used here. It's the other word that is focused more on ages or epics. And so we're talking more about an age of time, that this time will come. It will, it will come soon. And the end times were actually beginning, really, with the ascension of Christ. We see 1 John 2.18, Hebrews 1.2, Acts 2, quoting Joel 2, all pointing to the fact that we are now in the end times. This is the end time since Christ has returned. What's coming next in the end times is, of course, His return. That's what we're waiting on. The time between His first and second advent are the last days. Remember what Peter wrote, and I want to read it. I know I just paraphrased, but let me read it, Second Peter 3.8, because it, 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 it's, it's so pastoral. He's writing about the last things, and he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So let me say this to us. Don't, look over, don't overlook this, beloved. Remember this. When you get caught up in all that's happening around the world, when you get caught up in trying to understand this is supposed to happen, it's supposed to be soon, when is it going to happen, how is it going to happen, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day with the Lord. It's His timetable, not ours. Knowing that we are in the end times is important for us to remind ourselves as we live our lives. I think it's far too easy for us to meander through life as if nothing will disrupt our plans for work, and vacation, and hobbies, and retirement, or anything else that we've dreamed of. We need to hear the book of Revelation to know we are in the last times. We are to be alert, to be vigilant. Instead, Revelation is a call for us to do these things, to obey God, to hear His Word, to respond to it. We are to know that with Christ's return, it will be certain. It can happen at any time. It is imminent. It may happen in our lifetimes, and it may not, but we are called to be ready as if it would. We are to be certain as well that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour as he roams around. Know that Christ's return is imminent. Know that Satan is our real enemy. We shouldn't be surprised when we see his church, Christ's church, persecuted. Satan is an enemy. We shouldn't be surprised when he attempts to dupe our plans and our dreams. He is an enemy. Instead, our plans and dreams ought to be submitted and aligned with God's plan for us. In the final chapter of Revelation, 
chapter 22, Jesus is quoted two times saying this, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then a few verses later, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he will call to himself all who have trusted in him by faith, who have walked in obedience to his call. This is a call for us to do likewise, to trust and believe and put our confidence in him. Finally, the book of Revelation reminds us to be absolutely certain of God's sovereignty over history, that nothing is happening that will surprise him or frustrate him or prevent him from accomplishing his will. And so Revelation then is written to give us hope, written that we might not despair. I want to close with a quote from Michael Card, who he writes uh, this section in a book and then uh, a lyric from one of his songs. This is what Michael Card writes. He says, as John writes to comfort his first century congregation who are looking persecution squarely in the face, he also writes to us today who are squarely looking at the death of Christendom. John speaks on many levels, as does all of Scripture. Understanding his purpose in writing is not a matter of decoding or solving some complex mystery as much as it is a matter of simply listening to the Spirit. As with all of Scripture, the purpose is to turn a reading eye into a listening ear. And that has been my prayer for us as we start this. It will be my prayer as we continue through this study that our reading eyes would become listening ears. And if I can add to that, leading to obedient hearts. This is the lyric that I wanted to share with you from one of his songs. Hear the roaring at the rim of the world. See what every eye shall see. Behold, he's coming with the clouds to set all the captives free. Once the just and gentle victim who it seemed was born to die, see him now a blaze of glory as he moves across the sky. And that majestic silhouette who comes to take his bride still bears the healing wounds upon his hands and feet and side. The great unveiling of our hope, the promised jubilee, the revelation of our God, It's all we've longed to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed we do long to see your return, the great unveiling. But as you've given us your word, this book of Revelation, the unveiling of what is to come, would you use it to give our hearts hope? Would you strengthen our hearts? Would you uh, make us able to withstand both in the spiritual battles that we face in every day of our lives, but Lord, even if and when the time comes that we would face persecution, that we would not buckle, that we would not give up, that we would not hide or walk away, but we would stand on the sure hope that is ours in Christ. May we not be in love with information or ideas. May we not put our trust in concepts or precepts or doctrines, but may our love and our faith be solely in the person of Christ. And would you, by your Spirit, strengthen us to that task, that we may walk in faith in Him, obeying you, trusting you, believing in you throughout whatever comes our way. Father, do this work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing from our hymn.